Welcome to episode 128 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is Corey Atad. He's a Toronto-based film writer. His work has appeared in Defector and Esquire. Corey, thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you for having me again. Today, we're going to be talking about the new environmental action film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, directed by Daniel Goldhaber. I haven't seen a uh, an action film set in a pipeline region since Steven Seagal's On Deadly Ground over 25 years ago. <laughs> That can't be true. <laughs> there's got to have been other pi- other pipeline related films. Um, there's definitely been other oil films. You know, you got There Will Be Blood. Were there pipelines in There Will Be Blood? This is a film that has garnered a lot of controversy. Some people are very upset that a movie like this was even made. We'll be talking a little bit about some of the responses to this movie from the left and from the right. I can't remember the last time a book published by Verso Books was adapted for the screen, but this film is not really a straight adaptation of the book itself, which is nonfiction. And it's a book that not only you've read, Corey, but you've mentioned it a couple of times as a guest on this podcast. Yeah, I think I mentioned it. I think I might have mentioned, I don't remember if I had read it at that point, but I I mentioned it, I think, on the Don't Look Up episode. And then when we talked about Andor, which I think we're going to talk about both of those movies again. Uh, but when we talked about Andor, I mentioned the film because by that point I had seen the film. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been a hot topic on Corey Atad episodes of, <laughs> of junk filter. <laughs> yeah. When I knew this movie was coming, I also knew who my guest was going to be for the show. Might be headed to Texas for the winter. What's in Texas? This project. What kind of project? Try to stop the pipeline from being built on my property. Poisons the air, water. Damn, this place is sick. You guys cooking meth in here? You ready to start working? We have to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big. Michael, what do you think the odds are we blow ourselves up? I don't really care. Now, Corey, you've read the book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. Can you uh, tell my listeners a little bit about it? Yeah. So so uh, the book is, I think the most accurate kind of description of it would be like a polemic um, or maybe a manifesto. I don't know if it I don't know if it quite reaches manifesto level because like, it feels a little too... Uh, um, engaged in an argument still. Um, but essentially what he does in that book is he looks at the state of the climate, uh, movement and he makes the case that other movements were, you know, often, and and especially as the history is written are often defined by sort of peaceful protest and, and action, um, but that under undergirding them, there has often been violent uh, action as well, and that there's a real usefulness in that kind of action. He kind of wonders, why hasn't there been that much of it in the climate movement? There has been some, but it just hasn't been that much, especially when you compare it to like, he compares it to like, you know, Greenpeace blowing up uh, ships over stuff where the, uh, over issues where the stakes are lower than climate. So he's like, Given that the stakes are like the survival of the planet, 
how come we're not seeing people blowing things up? And he says, perhaps people should be blowing things up. Now, he he makes the sort of an intellectual argument that due to a, for a bunch of different reasons, optics and just sort of morality, it, it's probably best not to like to try to not hurt people. <laughs> You know, so he's not advocating assassinations. Uh, he's not advocating, you know, normal sort of terrorist bombings of civilians. He's like, blow up a pipeline, blow up a private jet when it's sitting, you know, on the tarmac or whatever. Um, and yeah, and basically the the movie takes that and goes like, well, what if we demonstrated what that would look like? One way that I thought about the movie as I was watching it is that this movie is from the perspective of people who've read the book and are trying to put into practice what the book preaches. The director and his crew made the interesting decision, since this is a movie and movies can change people's minds and things, but they don't make people do things, that this movie shouldn't either. That What this movie's job is to do is to function as genre entertainment. I use the word entertainment loosely, obviously, but the movie is supposed to work as a cinematic experience and not as a call to action necessarily. Although the filmmaker would also like you to put yourselves in the shoes of these activists and to understand why they're doing what they're doing. The movie's not condemning these actions so much as trying to depict faithfully what would happen if a, if a, if a, an organization tried to uh, blow up a pipeline. Yeah. I think, I think it's, um, the the movie is engaged with polemics and i think you know put, put, we can get into like whether it's putting it into action you know i obviously some people on the left would disagree disagree that the movie is doing that and i probably would too i think that it it's a i think the movie is a bit more of a like a fantasy demonstration right so it's it's sort of going you know it's going like well, what if somebody did do this? What would it look like? And in the way that when you're reading the book, the book doesn't have any instructions on how to blow up a pipeline. It doesn't even particularly describe how the, the you know a group would form and carry out such an operation. It just sort of says there's a, there would be an efficacy in doing so. And so I think that there's like a gap left uh, in the book that the movie sort of fills, which is. So the movie isn't saying like we read the book and we decided to go out and take action. The movie is almost saying, well, the book left a part out, which is what would it actually look like? And without going out and doing it ourselves, let's sort of imagine what it might look like. And importantly, imagine it within a frame that makes it look like something that's good. That's a good thing to do, or, or that at the very least has like a strong justification for being done. Um, the movie is on their side, which is the, to me, the most important thing about the movie. And the filmmakers have been very careful in the way that they've been promoting this movie, not to glorify the actions of these people so much. I feel that the movie's primary goal is to get you to identify and understand the impulse. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I think that they do kind of want to make it look cool as well. Like they want to, I think they, I think they want to... You know, it's funny. I, I want, it's very difficult when you talk to them about this because obviously they're, and, and I have spoken with the filmmakers about, about the movie. They, 
you know, whether it's a legal issue or an ethical issue or just like a matter of, you know, what would our distributor say uh, if we said certain things, I think that they're very careful about not trying to say what we want you to do is go out and blow up a pipeline. But I think that they do a bit want to glorify at the very least the kind of activism that would end up blowing up a pipeline, which is like, you know, yeah, that, that to me is like dicey. You don't often see movies that, that do that, that kind of, that put the audience in the position of supporting something that's not, not just illegal, but actually like genuinely controversial to the point where I think if you asked most climate activists, they wouldn't agree with doing these kinds of actions. And so you're telling even those people, well, wait a second, just watch the movie and see if you're not supporting them. And it's almost like getting you to go, well, I did sort of, I was sort of into it. I did kind of enjoy watching them do this. Um, And maybe that doesn't mean you go out and blow up a pipeline, but it means that you get a little bit more interested in taking other kinds of action or at the very least kind of getting in on, on these sorts of groups. Mm-hmm. Um, although even that there's some complication, like there's some interesting ways that the movie, you know, it, it's a little bit of an interesting idea in the movie that like these people aren't all friends. Like they don't even all really particularly like each other and they all kind of have their own reasons for doing things. Um, but that that's okay too. Mm-hmm. which is not always the message in left-wing spaces where it can be a little bit like, oh, you didn't agree with us on this very specific point in our meeting. Well, we're never talking to you again, and we're going to go and start up the Judean People's Front or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. the old the old left-wing issue. When you think about um, how a movie like this could have been adapted for the screen, I mean, the most obvious uh, route for the filmmakers to go would be to try and make a documentary about mm-hmm. this and try to find mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know a, a splinter cell of people trying to do this or you know a more of a, a conventional talking heads documentary about the stakes and uh, you know having experts uh, talking about the threat to the planet but one thing that I noticed about this movie is that there is no explicit call to action which you often see in sort of activist documentaries what do mm-hmm. I do now what's you know you watch a, a film that's all about how Fox News lies to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And at the end of the movie, they'll put up resources for what you can do next Mm -hmm. and things like that. This movie doesn't do that at all. It doesn't direct you to do anything. In, uh, But then again, neither does a movie about a heist uh, explain, you know, like you could also pull a heist. Here are some amazing resources (laughs) for how to do that. I noticed that the only moment of any kind of a disclaimer or anything in the movie is at the very beginning of the film is a land acknowledgement title card. Mm-hmm. Not only a land acknowledgement, it actually it has a, the land acknowledgement for where the film was produced. And then it has a it tells you to go to a website so that you can see whatever land you're on in North America, which treaties applied and and which indigenous people were living there. Though importantly, that also that land acknowledgement comes before even the studio logo. So it's not like part of the movie. It's sort of, uh, it's just the filmmakers sort of wanting to do something uh, to acknowledge, (laughs) to acknowledge sort of the indigenous heritage of the land. Uh, The movie itself has no, 
no particular call to action. And I think it's because it's a film first. It's a, it's a movie first. The idea, the idea is, okay, let's make a movie. We'll make it entertaining. We'll make it uh, just a, you know, a good time at the theater. And it will also present some ideas and get the audience feeling a certain way about the characters, about what they're doing. Um, you know, it, it takes even sort of arguments from the book and puts it in the mouths of the characters. Uh, so it's kind of doing it through the entertainment, right? But the entertainment is the thing that comes first, at least, at least in terms of the experience of watching it. And some people may object to this story being told as a genre exercise and with a goal towards entertaining an audience as opposed to uh, worrying them about the, you know, the situation at hand and, you know, what side are you on? And, and those kinds of questions, the movie may have rubbed people the wrong way because it's got a uh, cool synth soundtrack. It has mm-hmm. exciting action sequences. It has uh, flashbacks that are also used to keep the audience in suspense. Like just when you see somebody blowing themselves up, they cut to a flashback and then they come back to the main story. So these are all techniques that are designed to excite and entertain. Some people may think that that's immoral of the filmmakers to turn this subject into a thriller. I didn't have a problem with it. I don't know how you feel about that though. Well, I mean, I didn't have a problem with it at all. And, and I mean, that's probably partly just me as a cinephile being like, well, at the end of the day, it's a movie and I, I care that it's a good movie. Um, the political stuff to me is secondary, uh, at least in terms of assessing kind of whether it's a good movie or not. And I think it is a good movie. I think the stuff that you're describing, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fairly low budget movie and it feels quite scrappy, but in a good way, it's shot on 16 millimeter and it looks great in the way that like, 16 millimeter shot on a low budget looks great, a bit rough, a bit, you know, nice and grainy. Um, It's edited with like a real kind of clockwork sensibility. Like it almost feels a a bit like you're watching a Nolan movie or something. Like it's just, there's almost no room to breathe. And the moments where you, where it does settle down, you're getting important information about the characters or the plan and how it came together. Um, Cause, cause the movie starts with them basically uh, on their way, like they're all kind of setting up their alibis and heading out to the middle of West Texas to carry out this operation. And it's actually like, to me, it's quite cleverly written and structured where you're seeing them kind of put the plan into action. They're starting to build a bomb. It has that nice kind of the thing that I really love in movies where you, I could just watch people do process stuff for hours without saying anything. It's like Mm -hmm. people just building the bomb and I'm like, this is great. Let me watch more of this. And then, yeah, it'll cut to a flashback that gives you a bit of the motivation, how the character came to be involved in this group, but also um, how the plan itself came together. So you kind of learn details about the plan. You start to understand, oh, they're blowing the pipeline up in two spots. Well, there's a reason for that because uh, partly to prevent as much oil spillage as possible, but also because if they do it in two spots, the oil company won't be able to like sweep it under the rug because it'll be more clearly a terror attack. Um, you know, there's a whole thing with the involvement of the FBI and sort of twists and turns related to that. They get revealed sort of through flashbacks. Um, 
and sort of set up tension later in the movie. These are clever things that just make it an entertaining movie. Um, and yeah, there have been some some criticisms. There's a very big one by a writer named A. Hunt, uh, who's involved with sort of a mobile cinema collective in New York. And you know, that that sort of got a lot of play both from people sharing it being like, yes, this is a takedown. Often people sh- people sharing it who hadn't seen the movie, but sort of were suspect of the intentions of a film that is being released by sort of a major indie distributor um, and was financed by people who have like oil adjacent money as most rich people do. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're, you're playing a losing game if you start accusing uh, film financiers of having money sources. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, they, they would argue not, right? Like, I think that what the piece argues is that I don't, what's interesting about Hunt's criticism is that it doesn't rest on just one thing, right? Because he praises other films in that, that were also sort of normal indie Hollywood type movies. Um, so he has critiques of of the film on aesthetic grounds. Like he has an issue with the broad strokes in which we're introduced to the characters. So like you've got, here's the conservative guy and he has these issues and here's the indigenous uh, character or here's the girl who's dying of cancer because of an oil refine. And like, I can, I get the, I get that criticism, right? Like it's, yeah, to a certain extent, I wouldn't call them stock characters exactly, but they're like, there's definitely broad strokes. To me, that just fits with the genre, right? Like here's the character who has this issue or here's the character with this particular quirk. Um, but I can see how somebody would look at it and go, well, the problem with doing that is it's not realistic. And so if somebody watches it, it doesn't give them the next steps in terms of like, well, if I want to be an activist, here's the kind of people that I would look for because those people don't really exist in the real world, the way that the movie presents them. There's Mm -hmm. other critiques about the sources of financing. There's critiques about, um, uh, sort of just in general, the, the idea of releasing a movie that would have sort of salience for activism and direct action I think the argument is that it, it, it essentially the entertainment of it pacifies the audience. The audience, an audience, goes to see it. They feel like having seen the movie is their activism, which I'm sure there are plenty of people who who do do that. And then activism doesn't really happen. And so Hunt argues in his piece that like, well, what it should have been was like essentially an experimental movie that would be shown like many radical experimental films were and are sort of within activist communities made. So even when they're fictionalized, they're made for the purpose of the, the direct propaganda and, um, and sort of discussion that's, that's had. I think that that's a valid critique, right? Um, I just ultimately don't think it's a either or situation. You can have a movie like this. And I, and my main pushback is that, I think having a movie like this that is entertaining and again, importantly, has you cheering for them and what they're doing. When the movie ends, you're like, fuck yeah, blow up pipelines. Like that's kind of how you feel at the end of the movie. And I think that giving that to a mainstream audience when most of the movies that they're that they get would not have that message whatsoever. 
um, you know, like mentioned, don't look up earlier. Uh, one of the scenes that I really, really didn't like and don't look up is the scene where, uh, you know, she tells everyone at the, at that sports bar, how like they're, you know, these people are screwing you. And instead of people becoming activists, they all just go start rioting in the streets, which especially after kind of the way that Fox news and others tried to depict the uh, black lives matter protests kind of rubbed me wrong where I'm like, what you're doing is essentially saying that people taking to the streets is bad somehow, or violence is bad. Well, violence could be good in certain cases or, or could be useful in certain cases. Um, there's other films like, you know, Kelly Reichert made a movie called Night Moves, not the same as the Gene Hackman film. In my opinion, it's a great film. It's actually a really underrated film, especially among her films. People tend to look at, you know, Wendy and Lucy or Meek's Cutoff with her. But I think Night Moves is right up there with Jesse Eisenberg. And that in that one, he and a few other people get together and blow up a dam. They're also eco-terrorists. They blow up a dam. And, and in blowing up the dam, they accidentally kill somebody. And the rest of the movie, he's haunted by that and becomes increasingly paranoid. And it causes him to do more and more horrible things. And it's like, that might be a great movie, but the message that it's sending is like, don't do this. Don't mm-hmm. blow up a dam. Whereas I think that this movie, I don't think it outright tells you to go, go out and blow up a pipeline, but it at the very least, you're with the characters and, and it makes what they're doing seem cool. And if a regular person you know, goes to see it in the theater because it sounds like a cool premise or they put turn it on streaming when, when it's available to stream and they're like, oh, that was a good time. And then suddenly implanted in their head is this idea like, hmm maybe some radical action isn't the worst thing that could happen. There's a value in that. I, I just see a value in that. In terms of uh, A.E. Hunt's article, I, you know, I, I agreed with a few things that were said in it, but I also thought the film was innocent of some of the things that were being levied against it. Uh, one of the points that I thought was uh, worth mentioning in this Medium essay was that the co-financier of this film is a guy whose name is Alex Hughes, whose company Spacemaker Productions, their mission statement is to champion director-driven films that are deemed too risky and polemical for mainstream <laughs> studios and production companies due to their incendiary potential to disrupt the norm. But this company has produced things like Dasha Nekrasova's The Scary of 61st right, and all right. these, uh, you know, what we could call the dime square scene, which uh, right. is uh, rich kids pretending to be poor. A little subculture that has also been supported by, you know, disruptor types like Peter Thiel, who are not on the yeah. side of these people. They are uh, trying to sort of undermine <laughs> the argument that's on the other side of the right. But I also don't think that this movie is an empty-headed uh, bourgeois uh, revolutionary tract made by dimwits. Well, no. And and I think, uh, you know, <laughs> when you get into the dash of it all, I mean, look, she doesn't have a connection to this movie. Uh, uh, one of her collaborators, Eugene Cotliaro, uh, what's his name? Cotliaro. Um, anyway, he's, he's involved. He's sort of an executive producer on the movie, but I think at some, at some point you just have to look at the movie itself and look what it does. And I don't think that there's anything that you can point to in the movie. Um, at worst, you could say that they're LARPing, you know, that rather than having gone out and become activists themselves, they went out and made a movie and played dress up. Okay, fine. 
you know, but like, to me, that's different from, from, you know, the project of somebody like Adasha who, you know, she makes a scary of 61st, which actually I, I kind of enjoyed that movie. But like the, the thing with the thing with them is that they make these movies that are that or the, these podcasts or whatever that are real, like, oh, we're going to say the things that like the, uh, the real Puritans on the left wouldn't like us to say. And that then leads them to like, just crap on trans people and, and stuff like that. And you don't watch this movie coming away with anything like that. The quite the opposite. It's a very inclusive movie. It's a movie that sort of is about and tries to embody the spirit of collective action. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's directed by Daniel Goldhaber, but it's credited at the beginning as a film by, and it lists the four, uh, it lists, uh, Goldhaber. It lists his co-writers, Ariella Bearer, who's also the star of the movie and, uh, and Joel, Jordan Scholl. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but that's okay. Uh, and then Daniel Garber, who's the editor. Who's the editor. Right. And so it's, it's sort of crediting them as, as have, as being the filmmakers. Right. And I think that that's accurate. When you watch the movie, it has a sensibility that seems drawn from multiple sources. Uh, the editing is a very specific, has a very specific kind of mode. There's sort of a bunch of directorial interests, especially if you've seen Goldhaber's previous film, Cam, um, the ways in which he's like twisting genre around to deal with social issues. Um, I think that those are real things. And I think it's a little, if I felt any issue with what, with Hunt's critique, besides some specific things I disagreed with, there was a, there was a general tone of like, you know, I don't like these people. And so I'm going to take them down a peg. And to me, where it really kind of shows itself is in some of the real nitpicks. So like, there's one point where he says that, well, the movie's shot on film, but they could have processed it using like coffee grounds and, and other sort of non-harmful chemicals if they wanted to be real, you know, ecologically uh, minded. And I'm just like, you know, the problem... I'm aware that you can uh, uh, process film using natural uh, chemicals. I I have also seen those films. They do not look like anything that a normal person would ever go see in in a theater and watch, right? Yeah. So it's like, at, at what point are you making an argument that would improve the aims of the film or versus just kind of coming up with reasons to dislike it? And that's, again, not to say there were some serious legitimate critiques that I think are worth wrestling with, but there's a certain feeling of like, this shouldn't have been made at all because these people are a bunch of phonies uh, Mm -hmm. that I don't quite um, buy into. Well, I, I see who benefits from that kind of thinking, which is, you know, (laughs) big business and corporations, like they would rather a movie like this stay in a niche underground area that like what this essay argues is that basically it was immoral for a film studio to pay big money to acquire this movie and to have a marketing campaign that went with it, that that nullifies what this film is saying, that what they should have done instead was spent almost nothing on it, edited it in, you know, using coffee grounds uh, (laughs) to develop the film and to only show it, to small communities and the audience is directly affected by the issues that that means nobody gets to see it. Well, you know, what's, what's interesting about that, right. Is again, like radical collectives have been making those kinds of movies for, for decades. Um, And they've had 
they've been important in, in, in movements, right? Is, is the way, the way that you can create a sort of constructive propagandistic art that's meant for sort of the small community of activists, um, to, so that they can be in dialogue with each other and importantly to do it outside of any mainstream venue so that it feels purely of, of that movement. I'm fully on board with that kind of thing. Again, I just don't see it as as a as an either or situation. It's a both and, right? So, like to me, if you have a group of radicals who are making those kinds of films, and I'm sure, by the way, that they are currently doing that, right? If you have a bunch of people who who are doing that kind of stuff, and some of those radicals go and blow up a private jet or a pipeline or what have you, right? The advantage of having this movie out in the wild is that maybe some people saw this movie or perhaps read Malm's book. And, you know, they would look at that action and rather than uh, getting their panties in a twist about it would be like, you know, those people, when they blew up that pipeline had a point. And if you want, you can watch that movie, how to blow up a pipeline. You might learn something, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a value in, 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 if not getting the mainstream literally on board with radical action at the very least opening the door a little, like opening the crack, opening it just a crack, just so that that it is within the realm of, you know, it's like pushing the Overton window in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, when you're talking about the idea of, you know, this is sort of a, a, a general problem in, in some left-wing spaces, I think, uh, where there is a rejection of the mainstream in a way that implies that if it is mainstream, it is de facto bad because it's attached to capitalism or whatever. But the fact is, if you're trying to have a mass movement, you need the masses on board, right? Again, that doesn't mean that the masses themselves need to be radical, right? But how do you push that? And and which, by the way, is part of what mom argues in the book is, is this idea this idea that you had these movements and, and they're it's paid lip service in the movie, the, you know, conversations about MLK and, and that kind of thing where you had these guys who could be, uh, you know, MLK was in, in his own way, very radical uh, compared to the mainstream, but he was more palatable to the mainstream than actual like direct action type radicals who were, who were, you know, trying to take up arms during the civil rights movement. And in a way, those two things played off each other where you could have somebody like an MLK going, well, I am a, not that person. So if you don't want to deal with that person, you got to deal with me, but there's an extra bit to it, which is by having him embody a a bunch of those ideas, people might look at, let's say the Malcolm X in the situation and go, I don't like him and I don't agree with what he's doing. But he does come from somewhere and he does have a point. Having those types of conversations in the mainstream is important and they're often kept out of the mainstream. The mainstream usually likes to avoid anything like this. Well, this brings me to the flip side of of this equation that, you know, we talked a little bit about the sort of the left critique of this film, that it's not ideologically pure enough. Whereas the right are sort of complaining about this movie, but not in a major, major way. And we saw this as well. uh, And you and I talked about it with Roxana Haddadi on this very show, where we talked about the response to Andor, which is a pretty, to a certain extent, a fairly radical TV series, as radical as anything can be that comes to you from the Walt Disney Corporation. 
But the things that Andor talks about, people on the right aren't really comfortable talking about at length. They love complaining about Star Wars, but they love complaining about how woke it is and things like that. They don't really want to touch with a 10-foot pole a TV series that explains uh, the the road that ra- that people take that radicalizes them. Yeah. And the options that people have when they live in a sort of totalitarian state and like, what do you do about this situation? Do you just roll over and, and play dead? Do you join the, the party or do you fight the power? Yeah. Um, it's funny. People get conspiratorial about this stuff. I don't think it's a conspiratorial thing. I don't think anybody's looking at it kind of going like, how do we keep this movie down? Or how do, you know, I think it, I think it's genuinely an ideological difference. Like there's a, a mentality, a temperament and an ideological positioning uh, of the people who are in media, in these sort of important spaces that do sort of control and shift the conversation, the public conversation to, to a large degree, they're just temperamentally conservative people. Even, even if they're liberal or quite lefty or, or, or conservative, I suppose, like just literally conservative, there's just a general, like, we're not trying to rock the boat on real difficult stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. Climate craziness reaching a new level. A new film is out called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And you guessed it. It pushes climate activists to sabotage a Texas oil pipeline to stop that evil fossil fuels production. What Hollywood's doing overtly now is what they've done subtly for a really long time. Uh, But then go to the box office and see what hits. You think that this movie is going to hit like Top Gun hit? You think this movie's going to hit like 12 Strong hit, like Lone Survivor hit, like American Sniper hit, like the Hurt Locker hit. When we put movies out that show the true heroism of a selfless individual, the American people respond. They go, they love it. Hollywood's trying to bankrupt itself, I guess. I'm not sure. They've become so righteous in their cause, they don't understand the business that they're in. And that's fine. Make movies about blowing up pipelines. Nobody's going to watch it. I'm more concerned about the fact that I've got you've got Rolling Stone actually, you know, celebrating this film, which again I agree with Joey. No one's gonna go watch this thing. <laughs> Gen Z is like the TikTok generation where they go watch a video and then that is where they get their beliefs and their thoughts from. They're not a critically thinking uh, generation. So it does worry me for them to be fed, spoon fed this sort of uh, propaganda. But look, climate change, radical climate uh, change agenda is actually evil. Because fossil fuels are needed for the flourishing of human civilization and for human life. It's notable that that in that Fox News segment where they did talk about the movie, as you pointed out, on the one hand, they're saying like, wow, look at Hollywood trying to turn everybody into uh, into like a terrorist. But then also being like, but the joke's on them because nobody's going to see this movie because nobody cares about Hollywood movies. And then they list off a bunch of movies that were successful and they name conservative movies like Lone Survivor and stuff. And Top Gun, which was literally like the biggest movie last year before Avatar came out, they can't wrap their heads around any of this. They're playing a bit of a game, but in a way it feels like you can almost see it when they're talking about it. It feels like they're talking themselves down they're just like but it's not a big deal nobody's actually going to go go and blow up a pipeline that would it would be yeah. really offensive to me personally if they did that yeah. and and so i'm just glad that nobody cares about hollywood you know 
Um, yeah, but they're much more comfortable talking about how Hollywood's trying to turn your kid trans or whatever. You know, like they get really excited at the whole idea oh, of like how insidious and evil of course, Hollywood is. Will, but, but, and they'll call a movie like How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which, by the way, is not a Hollywood movie. They're, they're talking no, yes. about it like Paramount put it out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They, well, and, and what's funny is like <laughs> as with any of these things, you, you want to say like, well, they don't know that, except that. Of course, because they're in media. They 100% know, like, they're literally on television. They know the difference between, like, a major studio and not. They understand these things. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to deal with that. And it is, it is funny that, like, on the one hand, you know, Hollywood making one character gay for, like, two seconds in a Disney movie is going to turn all your kids gay. But don't worry about this blowing up a pipeline movie because nobody sees Hollywood movies. Nobody cares about Hollywood movies. So it's like they really want to have their cake and eat it, too, on this stuff. And also what they're really saying is, please don't go and see this movie. I want to complain about it for a few minutes, but I don't (laughs) want you to see it. And I don't want to have to talk about what the movie says. I just want you to be in a perpetual state of anger about it. Like Tucker Carlson, you would think would want to do a 15 minute uh, segment about how Hollywood uh, wants you to blow up a pipeline, but he doesn't, he's not going to touch it. He doesn't want to do that because ultimately, you know, and, and this, this is, I suppose, a bit of a rejoinder to Hunt's kind of issues with it. I think that people like Carlson recognize when a movie is showing you sort of subject matter like this and sort of valorizing the type of people who would carry out an action like that, that again, it may not directly inspire somebody to go do that action, but it gets people to sympathize with it. And he doesn't want people to do that. Whereas he knows that with the Disney movies, A, people are already going to see them one way or another, but he's aware that ultimately that's where it's not that controversial to put a gay character in a, in a Disney movie. Like I understand that it's controversial amongst a bunch of like, septuagenarians in florida but most people are just like so what you know it's not that big of a deal and so he knows that he can talk about those movies endlessly because people are going to see them anyway and it's not really going to affect them or to the extent that it affects them it society's already gone in that direction you know back in the 2000s it was a much bigger issue when brokeback mountain came out and they're like how dare they make a movie that implies that cowboys can also be gay? Like that was controversial, right? But we've moved past that. We're, we're, we're 20 years on from that almost. And gay marriage is legal. People are more okay with it. I know, I know a lot of people aren't, but just in general, the culture has moved in that direction. The culture has not yet moved in a direction that says terrorist actions against oil companies are fine, right? We're definitely not there. But Fox would say that terror actions against the Democrats are okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, they wouldn't frame it that way. No, but, but, but they would say that those uh, people at January 6th were just patriotic tourists. No, sure. And, and, and I think that that gets to, you know, when you're talking about, like, uh, at the end of the day, all of this is, is, a, is a question of propaganda, right? What is propaganda? What does it look like? How is it effective? I think that how to blow up a pipeline to the degree that it is propaganda, it's propaganda for the general attitude of like more direct action is good, more extreme action may be necessary, right? It, they say, the characters say in the movie, it's in the trailer too, uh, the, when she's reading off her kind of her manifesto at, at the end of the movie when she says, this was a last resort. 
it was an act of self-defense. They're not saying like, we just enjoy going and blowing things up. It's like, no, this was a last resort. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking about January 6th, I mean, it is their propaganda to say this was nothing. This was nothing. It was just people going around. They know what the images look like. It, they're not, you know, it doesn't, there's nothing about the images from January 6th that look fun and exciting, right? Because first off, it looks chaotic. It also looks like to the extent that it's not chaotic when it's the bits where they're shown, oh, it's just people walking around on a tour. I mean, you've got guys dressed up like idiots. That's not exciting. That's not getting anybody on board to go take down the Democratic Party. So they need to reframe it somehow to make it look more appealing, or at the very least, make it look like the whole thing was drummed up. And in fact, it was not really a big deal. Uh, and when we need to steal an election in the future, we'll figure out a better way to do it. Um, it's, you know, they, they could make a movie called How to Steal an Election, but they know that that wouldn't play. Right. Right. That wouldn't go too well. So I want to read you a very, very hot uh, excerpt from Armand White's review for the National oh, Review. This is this is what I live for. This is so funny because this is uh, the exact opposite of what uh, the Medium essay was worried about in terms of a left, uh, what the left should be worried about this movie. Uh, but anyway, so here's Armand White. He said, director Daniel Goldhaber is of the generation whose naive politics form the basis of puerile meta-storytelling. His interest in mock outrage comes from progressive arrogance, exploiting today's authoritarian death cult. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is only notable for exposing Western media's self-hatred. Mindless reviewers relate to Goldhaber's version of what Malm has called diversity of tactics, the depraved belief that a social movement should use force and violence for disruptive purposes. That's not what the book says. Terrorism, not logical persuasion or nonviolence. It's crazy that our media support this destruction. The term diversity of tactics may as well be a boardroom pitch meeting phrase. How to blow up a pipeline (laughs) isn't really a cautionary tale. It's a bizarre, cold-blooded illustration of why we no longer trust our media. (laughs) Not what I got got from the movie. (laughs) I love how angry he is about it because it's, uh, you know, in the Fox News segment, they clearly hadn't seen the movie. So they were just sort of talking about the idea of it. I like the idea that he saw the movie and, and was so angered by it. And I think, you know, he's, Armand is like one of the ultimate, like old men yelling at clouds and, and he's doing it in like this very verbose way where, where what, what you get from those bits that you read is like, here's a guy who hates the youth. He hates liberals. He hates that society would go in a direction that he finds sort of distasteful. And it makes him so mad. It makes him so, it's like, how dare they make a movie that valorizes these people? Could you imagine if people actually went about and did these things? Um, It's really, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing the way that he has no chill about it. You, you read what he said and you, then you read hunt what hunt wrote. And you're just like, are they talking about the same movie? Because one guy is saying it's an ineffectual piece of nonsense. And the other guy is saying that like the, all of Western civilization is about to collapse because Hollywood deigned to release a movie called how to blow up a pipeline. 
I saw this incredible video today of some that was filmed in a Walmart, like, you know, somebody uh, filming from the around the corner in aisle 12 of a shot of this guy just destroying all these uh, bush light beer cans. Like, so he was like <laughs> picking up whole two fours and throwing them down on the, on the floor. And it was like, not even the exact beer brand. It's like getting charged with like vandalism <laughs> to own the libs kind of stuff. Like there are all these like walking powder kegs uh, out there, you know? Well, these see, these people understand radical action going yeah. and, and destroying things in a store. It's, you know, a couple steps up and they're, they're destroying pipelines. You know, maybe we could get them in on, get them in on the cause, right? Maybe, maybe the right can make a movie called how to blow up a brewery. Yeah. Well, that's actually one of the more perceptive, you know, I, I, Hunt kind of takes issue with it in his piece, but I think it's actually one of the more perceptive things in, in, in the movie that the, uh, the conservative guy is there because of eminent domain issues and also just a general land protectionist. You know, he doesn't like that, that the oil is spilling on, on the land and, and killing uh, crops and, and animals. This movie actually, again, in some broad strokes, but it, I think it depicts something which is really true is that you have a lot of these people who are, let's say more conservative, more right wing who are angry about the world and have actually good reasons to be angry about the world. And if you would, if you could take that energy, that anger and channel it into something useful, right? Uh, not an easy thing to do, right? Because these people are fed uh, Fox news and, and that kind of thing. But if you can, if you can kind of get people on board to understand where and who the, the real enemies are, I mean, Im- imagine if if those people who were like storming the Capitol on January sixth were doing something constructive, like storming the Capitol. You know, I remember at the time people were saying like the problem is that they were storming. It's so bad to storm the Capitol. I'm like, well, I don't know if they had a good reason to do it. <laughs> like, if it was a reason I support, the reason I didn't support the January sixth rioters is because they were trying to like overturn an election and install Donald Trump as president. Right. Mm -hmm. But if they were going in there to say, we're stopping Congress from running until they do something about climate change, I would be supportive of that. And it wouldn't have happened because then the armed forces would have suppressed it very fast. Well, no, of course you, you would have seen a very (laughs) different kind of response, but like, but this is what I mean, right? Is if those people, if those people were, were, were kind of, brought into the right side of things mm-hmm. or the left side of things, as it were, uh, you, you know, you could make something happen. I think Fox is always fomenting, uh, insurrection and, uh, we've got to fight and we've got to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes to where you have to aim, aim for their heads kind of, uh, rhetoric but then when something like how to blow up a pipeline comes out they freak out and say it's dangerous and you shouldn't see this movie yeah you would think that they'd be very excited that uh, revolutionary spirit and the sort of pseudo anti-capitalist sentiment that they like to foment and targeting you know big businesses who are too woke or whatever like mm. it's so funny that when something comes along that uh, presents a vaguely coherent argument for uh insurrection and and uh fighting back uh, gets treated like something that needs to be uh, ignored. Yeah, well, I mean it makes sense because they because they better than anyone understand the power of doing that kind of thing, right? As you said, they are themselves doing it. They're engaged in it. The pe- people on, you know, this is this is where you get into the very uh let's say John Stewarty kind of thing about 
the problem with calling out hypocrisy, right? They know that they're hypocrites. Tucker Carlson knows that he's a hypocrite. He knows what he's doing, mm-hmm. right? Some of the other people on there, I'm not always so sure. Some of them genuinely seem quite stupid. Tucker Carlson knows what he's doing. And and so he knows that like that that it can be effective. Now, I think the difference, and this is where where it's hard, where the left has, let's say, a harder time, is that the left doesn't have uh, the levers of of institutional power in quite the same way. Um, to the degree that there are institutions that are generally, let's say, more liberal, uh, m- other mainstream media outlets, you know, education sphere, who many times will do things that, in some ways, are you know, let's say, taking things too far, or or you know, they'll implement diversity initiatives in very silly ways be- because. But but the thing is, they're doing it because they're trying to maintain a status quo. They're trying to respond and get ahead of like, well, people on Twitter are getting really mad, so we need to like just kind of cool things down, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to having people, imagine if you had people at the top who were like, no, 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 we have an agenda. And our agenda is to get certain kinds of people elected, and it's to get certain people in certain positions, and it's to get the public to believe certain things. If the left had that kind of uh, infrastructure, which the right very much does, then something like how to blow up a pipeline would actually be even more effective, mm-hmm. right? Because it would be part of a larger propaganda machine. Unfortunately, we don't have that at all. Uh, it just doesn't exist. So, you know, despite what people will say about MSNBC, um, <laughs> you know, NBC is corporate media, as like Jimmy Dore would say, and he's right. You know, they're not like the devil, like he would say. But they're not, you know, why isn't MSNBC promoting this movie 24-7? If you would think that they would be doing that if if they were interested in actual left-wing causes, that's not what they're interested in. It's not what the Demo- Democratic Party is interested in. It's not what it's not what any of these institutions are interested in. They're in- interested in maintaining their, their position. And they would also uh, consider a movie like how to blow up a pipeline to be a Bernie bro movie too. Oh, sure. You know, this is a movie you know. for, uh, for those crazy, uh, unrealistic, uh, uh, lefties, you know, it's funny. It's a movie that, uh, maybe the far left may have some issues with some on the far right have had some issues with, but, but I feel like almost the far left would be more inclined to have an argument about this movie than anybody in the center or on the right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's in, in a way, if it was more clear that the movie was telling you to go out and blow up a pipeline, I think that that would have created a little bit more mainstream discourse around it, even though it is a small indie movie. But the fact that it's not, the fact that it's trying to be a little bit, and again, I guess suppose this would go to Hunt's point about the failures of the film. It's not quite uncomfortable enough. The movie has like great reviews, you know? And I can't imagine that every critic out there is like, yeah, blowing up pipelines is great. It's just they watch it and they're like, this is a good movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. You can watch it even if you disagree with the politics and it's it's sort of a good movie and it makes you think a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, you know? At worst, you get like when I was when I was on talking about it on the CBC, the sense that well, I enjoyed it, but I was a little bit uncomfortable enjoying it. Like, okay, great, you know, that's good, that's a good thing, but it's not like it's not like I watched it and I felt deeply <laughs> offended or something. Uh, 
How could they you, do that to know. that pi- poor pipeline? How could they blow up a don't don't you realize that it, even if you're not killing anybody, you're putting these people out of work. Like if the price of uh get of oil goes up, then that's going to affect people who are in marginalized Which is an argument in the movie. It's an yeah. argument in the movie, right? Yeah. That's an argument that's well, in the movie. This is one of the cool things about the movie. You know, we should talk a little bit about the movie itself. Yes. Is that uh when they were working on the adaptation of this film that um Malm was sending the filmmakers criticism of the book that he thought was worthy of consideration for the screenplay. So there are a few moments in the movie where they put the arguments about this uh, book's thesis into the mouths of some of the characters. It's uh, and, and, and how that would be grappled with. Well, it's a, it's a smart, it's a smart choice to put that stuff in the movie because I mean, to some degree, and I've heard some criticism of, of the movie just in terms of the dialogue being a little too like, well, now is the bit where the activists talk about activist kind of stuff, and it's not quite polemical, but it's a little bit like ham-fisted in places. Well, that part didn't quite ring true for me, uh, as you pointed out. The conversation that they're all having about stuff—they're too far down the line of the project yes. to be having this conversation. They're, they're not having the con- no, no activist who's literally like just filled a bunch of barrels with explosives is having the conversation like MLK was considered a radical in his day. Like that's not ha- that's that conversation happened ages ago already, yeah. right? Yeah. But uh, but you know it's fine. And from what I understand. They actually cut out a lot of dialogue, and I and I won- and I noticed bit, this time seeing it because I've seen it a couple times. But this time seeing it, I noticed a few of the bits where they had clearly done the cutaway, and you can see the side of their mouth. It's not actually moving with the dialogue. Like they've done those kind of clever, somewhat clever edits because they've clearly cut a lot of dialogue out of the movie, so mm-hmm. that it's not quite as didactic and and polemical, but also more importantly, so that the movie just is maintains a momentum as, and and is exciting. Yeah. Um, but but those are those are you know features of the movie. I think I think that the uh, the process elements of the movie are also really interesting in that they don't make what they're doing look easy. And I don't think it's in a, it's meant to dissuade you from doing it. I think that it's meant to show like, well, okay, wait a second. Building a bomb sounds like something that anybody could just do, but you can't just do it. Like you need to learn how to do it. It can have, it can be a bit dangerous to do. Um, you know, things will go wrong. You know, there's a, there's a couple points where things sort of kind of go wrong and, and they have to regroup that's part of doing this kind of stuff. And I think that portraying that in a realistic way is helpful because it means that there will be people who go, that's too hard. I don't, I'm not going to do something like that. That's too like, never mind that it's illegal or whatever. I could end up in jail. It's just like, literally it's too difficult, but you know, people need to know that these are real things that like I've, I've heard from a few people. I've seen a few people mention like, Whoa, that, movie actually made it look like it was possible to do, even though it doesn't make it look easy, right? Mm-hmm. It looks possible, mm-hmm. which I think was kind of the point of doing the movie, right? These are the things that you are expected to deliver if you're making a heist film. Like it has to feel sure. like it's something you could pull off. Yeah. If you're making a polemic film, like the Battle of Algiers, the movie yes. has to make a logical sense while you're watching it. You have to understand mm-hmm. the motivations of these people. You have to see that it can be done. That was what was so inspiring to so many radical groups about that movie. 
Yeah. Of course, the difference, the difference in that case is that they were dramatizing something that had already occurred. So it, it, was, a, it was a way to visualize something that you could read about in a book, but this way you see it on screen. This one has a little bit of the, perhaps it's a detriment that it's imagining something. So there's still a, a kind of a remove from fact, but it's, it's certainly like, you know, there's a reason that I had brought it up in relation to Andor, right? Because Andor in its own way was showing the process of things. But I think the difference in Andor is that never mind the science fictional aspect of it. So literally things are not possible. You know, there's a heist sequence and a literal heist. They steal a bunch of gold, right? In, in, in Andor, there's no point where you're watching that show going like, well, this seems like literally how one would do this. It's in the Star Wars universe. It's all fictional. The thing that works in that film, which actually, or sorry, in that series, which actually may be more effective than, than how to blow up a pipeline is the specifics about radicalization, how a person becomes radicalized. How to blow up a pipeline has a little bit of that, but it's a little bit more focused on just like, here's how they went ahead and did it. And you're missing a little bit of that. Well, how did the group, like you see how the group came together and there's like, there's one point where you have one of the characters who's been posting videos online about how to, you know, make improvised explosives. And then, uh, and then one of the characters kind of sends a DM and is like, Hey, I really, I really like what you've been doing. You want to talk about a project. And it's like, if anybody ever sends you that DM, it's the FBI and they're going to arrest you. Like that's not how that stuff works. Um, So, you know, in that sense, it's not particularly realistic. And in a way, Andor is more realistic on that, on that sort of thing, right? The, the way that people connect and organize. Um, so I guess the message is like, watch both because (laughs) you'll get, you'll get the, the kind of instructions on both ends. This film was shot on 16 millimeter in a month and the film went from conception to completion in only 19 months. Uh, according to the director, two months of research, four months for the script, three months to cast finance and prep the movie 22 days of principal photography and six months of editing. This is definitely a movie that got discovered in the editing room because the director was apparently doing all these moving master shots and things like that. And the, the editor was sort of combing through it. And he even admitted to the director that uh, I don't know how to edit a movie. It seems (laughs) like he was like mystified by all this footage that he had. Um, The director encouraged Daniel Garber to treat the footage like a documentary and not to conform (laughs) the footage to the screenplay. I think that that is one of the things that's most impressive about this movie that, you know, it's uh, has polemical aspects to it, but it is, uh, and it's inspired by a a nonfiction book that was a bit of a manifesto, but the movie is not necessarily a tract. The editor is not faithful to all the dialogue that was written for this movie. It's more interested in depicting the process. I guess I'm not the first person who noticed a, a Bressonian um, element sure. to this movie, the way that uh, we see so much of the putting together of the bombs and the process of, you know, the, 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 the close-ups on the hands. Goldhaber said that he was advised by a camera person that he normally worked with. I, get, I think she, he worked with her on his previous movie. She wasn't available to work on this project, but her note was that he has to shoot this movie on film because of all the daylight exteriors and also because it is a Western. Right. 
which right. I thought it's, it's uh, it West sure Texas. is. It sure is. In an unusual yeah. uh, Western, uh, you don't see too many movies set in Texas where you can tell how cold it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like winter it's, in Texas. Uh, you don't see very often. Yeah, no, it's 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 a really well done production. I also like the way that it does do a bit of not globe trotting, but sort of trotting around the states. Like you get some of the stuff in 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 Long North Beach. Dakota or one of the Dakotas. Yeah, uh, and it's all snowy. You get some uh, Long Beach stuff. I also really liked how, um, and this was something that when I interviewed the filmmakers, I think it was Malm who pointed it out, uh, but. They talked about the idea of making the infrastructure the enemy and making it alien. And so the idea of taking these these sort of uh, oil infrastructure things that exist in the landscape and that many people, especially the people who live around them, basically treat them as just a part of the landscape making them feel like intrusions on the landscape. Mm-hmm. And the the best example of this, and I it feels like it must have been a special effect, but the flat, the first flashback uh, when it goes to Long Beach and you see them standing outside that house and the background is this giant oil refinery and it looks, it looks like something out of like Blade Runner or something. Like it has that, it almost looks like a matte painting. Mm-hmm. It feels so at a remove from the environment uh, outside of it. And I think that, Again, that that's partly to make the point about the infrastructure, but it also does the thing of making you as a viewer feel like, well, yeah, of course that that shit needs to be blown up because look how horrible, like just visually hideous it is, right? In all the um, the films that this reminded me of, including films like Costa Garver's Z, The Battle of Algiers, obviously Michael Mann, Sorcerer, yeah. the way that Mann in uh, Thief depicts the the process of uh, being a safe cracker with the tangerine dream score and sorcerer also depicts the danger of uh, working with explosives and a tangerine dream score uh but the filmmaker that i also thought of a little bit while i was watching this movie was todd haynes career long concerns that haynes has had with our health and the mm-hmm. danger of the environment that we live in towards our health and the sympathy that the that Haynes has always shown for people who are trying to hold on to their health in the middle of an unhealthy environment and how poisonous mm-hmm. the world that we live in is. Um, I thought that some of the most effective stuff in Pipeline was showing people in these very toxic environments. Those Those two young women, one of the characters' mother has died. And they're uh, they're having a cigarette in front of that terrifying backdrop yes. of all the oil refineries in, in in the distance. And I also loved the character that Forrest Goodluck plays, who's Michael, yes. who's the indigenous man who lives in North Dakota. Apparently, the director trusted him enough to film all of his stuff himself. Uh, that very striking shot of that uh, giant chimney oh, with yes. all the flames the, going off, which yes, the neighborhood yeah. refers to as the birthday cake. That's what right. they call that thing. Uh, right. but, but, you know, you just get the sense that like these people have been motivated to take the actions that they take because of the, uh, the danger of their lives already. Yes. The movie doesn't have to explicate too much about uh, why people are taking their actions no, because yeah. you see the worlds they live in. And also the Trumpian guy, like the guy who is, they never really spell it out too much, but that, 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 that guy who wants the government off his land uh, mm-hmm. You would think that he voted for Trump in 2016, and and probably, the, yeah. and and they uh, referred to him that character as the diversity hire in the movie yes. because almost everybody in the movie are people of color except for him, 
Um, yeah. The only uh, semi-famous person in the cast, and I stretch the definition of fame when I say this, is the actress Sasha Lane, who plays Theo. Yeah, who Sasha was Lane in was American Honey. American Honey. She's been in a few things since. I think the other the other person. I think some of the others have been in like TV shows. Ariella was in a uh, like sort of a one of those. Marvel teen kind of shows. Yeah. These are um, all unfamiliar faces to me. Yeah, the, the I didn't only quite one, recognize Sasha Lane even, and I've seen American Honey. It took me a yeah, few the, minutes to recognize her. The only one who's, uh, who's Forrest Goodluck was in Miseducation of Cameron Post. And apparently he's great in that. And, and he's then, in The Revenant too. And he's in The Revenant. And then, uh, th- but the other one who is popping off more is Lucas Gage, um, who, uh, in particular because he was in one of the seasons of the white Lotus. Uh, but he's also known, he's famous as the guy who, uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a whole thing on Twitter where he had been in some like meeting or something over zoom with a director. And the director was like on a hot mic talking shit about how shitty his apartment looked. Mm -hmm. And people were like, this is like clearly an actor who doesn't have like a lot of money. Like, why are you making fun of like his apartment or whatever? And, uh, and he, and I think it was like from that video that, that went viral that like Mike white put him in, in uh, the white Lotus. So he's kind of become, he was also in the new season of you and he's kind of, he's sort of like a rising, a rising star. He, I think he recently, he was always out, I think, but he recently got engaged or something like that. And so there's a bit of uh, excitement around him and he's very funny. And yeah, he, he, he sure is. He, it's him and, and his girlfriend in the movie as these uh, sort of Portland uh, uh, radicals who are shown. And it, this is an interesting thing. They're shown already in, taking radical action. It's just, it's much smaller kind of messing up sort of sabotaging trucks and things like that. And, um, and they're also coded as bourgeois, right? Like, doesn't at one point doesn't one of the characters? Is, yeah. yeah, like apparently he has he comes from money, so he's kind of he like come, a he comes from money. Yeah, he's he, he's he a dime square his, kind of guy. He can always call yeah, he, his dad's lawyer if his he gets dad's in trouble. Lawyer, yeah. But I, but I thought I thought those characters were really interesting in that they're the type of and in fact the movie plays with that because there's the whole FBI plot involves them, and so there's a little bit of a feeling of like are these characters just like either LARPing or they're just like idiot kids who don't know what they're doing. But in fact, they're very committed to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the, they, they're they the ones the who, risk. and they, and they also uh, specifically protect those two uh, oil workers from getting killed. Yes. Yes. Because, because these, these guys show up uh, at the scene just before the detonation takes place and they would definitely yeah. have died. Which, which that's <laughs> that, that part's a little confusing, but I understand it. Well, yeah, it's because there's a they whole kind thing of they disappear and they the don't drone. come back. Yeah. There's a bit, there's a bit of funny business going on there, but it has one of my favorite things in the, in the whole movie, which is, which is one of the, let's say broadest elements of the film, which is when, uh, he decides to go distract them uh, and like, you know, puncture their tires and stuff. And then he's, he runs away and they just full on start shooting at him, yeah. which is like, it's the, it's like the most like, great. We're going to have these like American idiots who think that they can just shoot whoever walks on to like property. That's not theirs, which I don't know how realistic that is. Although it, it might be realistic, but it's very like movie. It, mm-hmm. it feels like a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of stuff like that in the movie that, that to me 
in a very nice way reminds you that you're watching a genre film. So like my fit, we, we talked about this after we saw it, but the, the, one of my favorite details is there's a couple of points just before the bomb explodes where there are these very fast snap zooms onto like uh, a pressure gauge and then uh, a zoom, a fast zoom onto the bomb itself. And then, you know, another fast zoom. And it feels like the kind of thing that like, was done in some movies in the seventies and eighties and then never done again. And I was like, that's great. Like, I love when a movie does that kind of thing. Um, it, it feels, it's not naturalistic. It, it, it's pumping up the action and there's a quality to me. The thing that's impressive about the movie is that besides the, beside the subject matter and beside the fact that it's sort of well-made, which I think it is, it's also, um, you know, yes, it's drawing from Brisson, it's drawing from all these other movies, but there's a there's also like just a very lean, muscular genre quality to it. It feels like they were like, we want to make a really good genre movie. And they they looked at, you know, movies that did it, and they were like, let's do just the leanest, most straight-ahead version of this. It feels a bit like an exercise, but I love a genre exercise. I love being able to watch a movie where I'm like, I didn't need like long drawn out things where I'm getting to know the characters. What the movie gives me is enough. I don't need to learn all this other stuff. I don't need world building, right? The I saw somebody on Twitter, uh, just a random person, so I'm not going to call them out or anything, but it was like somebody who said that they thought that it would have been better as a TV series because then you could have had whole episodes that would sort of show how how the characters got to where they are. I guess that's the Andor version of it, right? But like, I'm not saying that that would be bad, but I like the fact that it's an hour and 40 minute movie that just it it just does what it does. And And there's so few movies that, do that now it ends at the moment when it should end it like it it feels like there's no wasted space in it and we don't actually have to spend a great deal of time with these people you know like no because that's the movie is about the people that are carrying this thing out but it's not a character study it's a character sketch yes 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 to to the degree that you understand them it's only so that you understand them for the purposes of the plot and again that serves the secondary function of helping you understand in a very generalized way. Well, okay, yes, there's going to be all kinds of people who might be interested in getting in on, on a direct action as extreme as this, whether it's the conservative guy for his own reasons, whether it's, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, indigenous character, Michael, who, you know, to me, he's like in a way the most fascinating character because he seems to genuinely have the burn it all down, attitude the way that he treats i guess it's his mom in the film uh who's running a conservancy where she's you know she has him counting seeds for for the trees that they're going to plant uh or store or or whatever it is that they're going to do you know she's doing important work and he denigrates it uh and you know he's not wrong about what he says in terms of like in the grander scheme there's bigger things that they need to be tackling but there's you know the last shot that you see of him is he's back at work in his store and his mom kind of looks at him and gives him that look that's like i know you've gone down a darker path and he looks 
upset about it. Like he's not ha- he's not in a happy place at the end of the movie, and that's not to suggest that the action is bad or that he shouldn't have taken it. It's just that this idea that you do have in these groups the people who are like it's not just that they're diehard or that they're extreme. It's that their headspace is so dark that they're not even looking at the positive parts of doing what they're doing. They're just like, these oil companies need to be taken down. Which, by the way, is kind of how the character in his flashback is introduced. He goes and picks a fight with with one of the white oil workers uh, who's, I guess, living on the reservation. Yeah. The, the one who his mom says, like, you know, these people just come here for work, right? Like, why are you picking a random fight with a guy? Yeah. Well, more constructive at the very least to pick a random fight by blowing up a pipeline uh, than to just beat up or, or try to have some guy beat you up like you're in Fight Club or something, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, which granted is a little bit the idea in Fight Club is like. You, you you take this like roiling anger and alienation and you direct it towards something. Now, granted, in that case, it's also sort of a dubious mission that they have. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's fascinating to have a character like that, like that in a movie, and to not feel like oh, it's just a guy with a chip on his shoulder. Like that's not what it. There's something darker going on with him. In a way, the movie is giving you more information than you know what to do with. Yeah, I don't want to turn into Rick McCallum and say it's so dense. There's so many things going on, but <laughs> the movie doesn't have to give you everything. It can allude to many things and let those ideas spin around in your mind in the aftermath of the movie. Like the the I feel like the flashback footage adds an extra level of depth to your memories of the of watching the film. Well, yeah, and in fact, having seen the movie more than once, the the interesting thing about watching it sort of knowing what's going to happen is remembering like, right at this point, I didn't yet know this information about this character. So the tension that's, that comes from that uh, is interesting, but then also like you're saying the, the depth in that it gives you this sketch, but within the context, it suggests more and more things. Um, You know, to me, that's not, fundamentally different from like a lot of great genre films. Like I think of a first blood, which, you know, the series obviously went in kind of some crazy directions. directions. Yeah. Yeah. Very jingoistic. The idea of, of a movie that is basically just an action movie. But when you watch first blood, you, you do come away with it with a bit of that feeling of like, wow, look what we did. Look what we did to these people who came back and were treated like vagrants and treated, uh, you know, came back from a war that we conscripted them to and, and, and we treated them like garbage. Again, it's not that you come away from like first blood being like, wow, what a strong message that that movie left me with and it should win an Oscar and, and all of that. Like it's an important film. It's just that it's doing the genre entertainment thing and then layering in these sort of social ideas, um, that, that to me, again, I go back to, to what the value of this sort of entertainment is. The value is in, in shifting what looks normal, right? You go see a Hollywood movie, you're expecting to see even ones that are a bit more controversial. You're expecting to see something that's within the scope of normal attitudes. 
And so to put a movie in theaters in multiplexes, that's about people going and blowing up a pipeline for the cause of climate. Um, it helps to normalize those attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think one movie does that. I don't think one movie or generally one movie can't be that important, especially a, fic- a fictional narrative like documentaries are a bit different or docudramas can be a bit different. But but for a movie like this, I don't expect this movie to change the world. But in the same way that like, you know, again, going back to, to the gay rights uh, struggle, to the degree that from a certain point in the 90s, including you know, Ellen's, uh, uh, big coming out to stuff like Will and Grace to stuff like Brokeback Mountain. And just over time helped, they weren't the only thing. There was a lot of activism. There was the push to have gay people come out publicly that helped a lot, but it was all working together as part of a push to normalize certain attitudes towards LGBTQ people. I don't see much of a difference in this. You put out the book, you put out the movie, you make other movies. You know, frankly, I didn't like the movie that much, but even something like Don't Look Up plays into that. I think that that movie has some problematic attitudes in terms of what message it's sending about the cause. But at the end of the day, if people are watching that movie and thinking about climate, and they watch this movie and they think about climate, they start to understand the world in a, in a, in a certain way. I can accept how to blow up a pipeline as a genre film about a very serious subject as long as the genre filmmaking is good and 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 yes. cements the points that the movie's trying to make. Give me a convincing and realistic portrayal of a cell that is trying to blow up a pipeline and show me the process. I don't need to know yeah. how to do it. I need to know why they're doing it. And I guess that's what's yep. missing from the book. And and again, and again, not not that these movies are not good, but distinctly not the kind of movie that's problematizing what they're doing. The movie, again, the movie includes critiques of what they're doing, but it doesn't problem like make it problematic. It doesn't, it's not like some tort, these are tortured souls. You know, even, even Bresson, go watch The Devil Probably. You're not exactly coming away from that movie <laughs> thinking like, oh, wow, these left wing radicals are so great. You yeah. know, you, you don't, so so I think there's only positive to be drawn from this kind of depiction, regardless of the other critiques. Again, the other critiques are valid. It's just in those specific terms, I think that it's a positive. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think the movie's good. I think that, I, that that's the main thing that I come back to. I'm just like, this is the kind of movie that when I found out it wasn't playing up in Richmond Hill, I was disappointed because I was like, oh, I wanted to like send my friends to go see it. You know, I have a friend who's trying to get some people to come in from the suburbs to watch it at the varsity. That's a hard thing to do to get them to, to come out to the varsity to see it, right? It's downtown. Not everyone lives downtown. Um, hopefully, hopefully uh, it does well um, kind of streaming. It's, it sounds like it's doing reasonably well um, at the box office. I mean, again, indie movies don't make money at the box office anymore. And frankly, they're not expected to these days. Like the, the distributors know like, we'll make whatever we can from theatrical. The theatrical is more of an advertisement to make it look like a real movie so that we can then get it going on, on streaming and licensing it out. And I'm sure it'll be streaming. And, and, uh, and I, 
I would hope people check it out because it's a good, you know, the same way that they should watch Andor, even though it's a Disney Plus show and uh, Disney is evil. They're good shows and they're good movies and they have good, it's not, it's not even just that they have good politics. It's that they have, I think they have a good engagement with politics so you can watch it and think about things. I also love that moment in uh, Pipeline where that guy's doom scrolling on Twitter. <laughs> oh yes, I love I love the idea that like you know you have the one person who has cancer, the one person whose mom died. Like all these people have like these real reasons for getting into it, and then there's the one guy who's like the Greta Thunberg who's just like. I can't concentrate on school because, like, all I can do is doom scroll. I really like the bit where uh, uh, he's telling his mom, like, yeah, everything is fine. Everything's fine. Thank you for the computer. It's really helping me out. And, like, literally all he's doing. All he's doing is just we're all going to die. Yes. You know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I could hard relate. I I doom scroll all the time, as you can tell by my Twitter feed. Yes, of course. Corey, before we go, uh, we should talk a little tiny bit about uh, Elon Musk's going to be taking our blue check marks away in a couple of days. Yes. You know, I earned my blue check mark. So did I. Uh, I earned it by becoming a freelance writer and then submitting an application to Twitter that said, I'm a freelance writer and my name is my brand. And I think because I used the word brand like five times, they were like, whoa, we like brands. Yeah. And so they gave me a blue check mark. And ever since then, every time I tweet something, I get some person. I mean, for years it was it was the like, oh, you're just a blue check, like whatever. And then for and then now I keep getting people who think that I ha- that I pay for Twitter. And so I'm like, actually get rid of my blue check because I I don't want people <laughs> it's thinking. Damaging just my brand other, now. <laughs> just the other day, I think I sent you that that exchange that I had. Uh uh, if I did, right, I sent that yeah, to you. Yeah. Was somebody? I, I said something, and somebody had the wise crack of like, "Well, then you pay for Twitter." I'm like, "Let me tell you something. I would never pay for Twitter. Twitter is a free. The whole joke of the website is that this website is free. Yeah, I'm not paying for Twitter. It's yeah. not happening. Take no. away my blue mark, Elon. No, I, I I pay dearly for Twitter in many important ways, psychologically, <laughs> mentally. <laughs> yes. Why would yes. I want to pay financially as well? But um, yes, exactly. So yesterday on Twitter, um, something happened that I thought was very depressing. He's been doing this stuff lately where he's been uh, targeting organizations that are publicly funded, news organizations, and calling them government funded media. Pierre Polyev, the leader of the Conservative Party, was encouraging him to give CBC this label that he's also given to organizations like the BBC and NPR and PBS. Um, And it worked. He actually changed the CBC's uh, designation. They've got a little badge that says that they're government-funded media, which insinuates that they are in the pocket of the government and they do whatever the government tells them. That They don't have any editorial independence. And the CBC, like PBS and NPR, announced that this is not a great uh, thing to stick on us and it's not true And until this is removed. We're taking a pause from our activities on Twitter, which, of course, thrilled all the Pepe types who were really, really happy to see CBC finally taking one in the nuts. And yeah. then Elon um, did something really gross where he made a 69 joke 
because people were saying, well, oh, the CBC is only 70% publicly funded. And he said, oh, okay. So less, then he changed less than it to 70. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Less than 70%. So, yeah. So he said, oh, well, well, in that case, and he changed it to 69% government run media. And to me, it was like, um, um, it was like, um, taking photos with your host, like taking comedy photos with your hostage or something like that. You yeah. know, it was like, it was, uh, it, it, it thrilled people who uh, love to see the liberals suffer, but it also felt like a, a, a major abuse of his power to sort of take a news organization and uh, mock them like that. You know, to me, what's unsettling with it is the guy took it over with, took over Twitter with uh, under the, idea that Twitter is essentially a public square. And so you need free speech on the public square. And never mind that he's not upheld any kind of free speech thing. He, you know, he still bans people and does all kinds of stuff. The idea of manipulating the service to basically kind of create antagonists, uh, to antagonize uh, you know, parts of the media, and and to do it in ways that are uh incredibly, you know, speaking of what we were talking about with Fox, just like super disingenuous, right? So it's true. Okay. Uh, you know, some people were trying to argue that, well, these are not technically government funded. They're like publicly funded and there's a difference and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know what? They are government funded, right? They're funded by the government. People were saying the BBC, because he had applied that label to the BBC, and people were saying the BBC is not government funded. Uh, it's a license fee or whatever. And, and NPR is not is not uh, government funded because it only receives a small part and the rest of it, it's like, okay, fine. But we all know that NPR would basically stop functioning if they didn't get their government funding. So they're government funded. The issue is that in the parlance of Twitter, government funded is the same as state media, right? As in state run media. As in China. Correct. Or or Russian television or, or that kind of thing. And in fact, as CBC pointed out, in Twitter's own description of what the government funded label means, it says that the government has some uh, editorial control over uh, the news department. And I think it's so it's it's disingenuous and the disingenuousness is for the purposes of muddying the waters even more about what are trusted news sources and what are not now i have my criticisms even though i was just on the cbc i have my criticisms of the cbc and what when they say they're impartial what that impartiality looks like as some people pointed out for example they have a, a clear edict that they never refer to palestine right because palestine doesn't technically exist as a state blah 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 right mm. those are choices that they make uh, they're they're not choices that are forced on them by the government but they're definitely choices you know and and they have some idea of what impartiality looks like and what neutrality looks like that i might disagree with that certainly conservatives disagree with the mission itself to muddy the waters on that stuff to basically say that news organizations that you know one can be reasonably skeptical of and one can have criticisms of is straight up not to be trusted because it's towing the line of the government. Well, I'm sorry, but like, are we basically only going to approve of, of news organizations that you Elon Musk personally approve of is, 
uh, are basically, are we only going to be able to trust like Alex Jones and the free pr- and like Barry Weiss is the free press. Right. Uh, because that's kind of the implication, right? Is like, this guy is going to get to decide through a bunch of algorithms and tags and stuff, what trusted media is, what it looks like. I find that gross. Um, and I think, and I think the CBC and NPR and the others, apparently Swedish radio is also stopping their, their Twitter activity. I think that's all good. They should stop because these are bad actors. All of these people, these are bad actors. And also people are being disingenuous about the, the true intentions of people like this, you know, when the CBC was marked as government funded media, some people, uh, in media circles, independent media circles were like, well, that, you know, that's true. That's a fact. Why is everyone getting mad at him for stating a fact? And it's like, he's not stating a fact. He's using that language because he knows that it's a dog whistle actually. Uh, yeah, no, it's well, yeah. What you're saying is exactly right. But they give him this like, well, it is government funded media. I don't see what the problem is. And then a few hours later, he changes it to be 69% government funded media. Ha ha ha. And it's like, yeah. well, you just wasted some credibility that you had on pretending that this guy was on the up and up and being honest. Well, th- this to me, this to me is why I think, first off, if you're having a conversation about government media, don't make the argument that you're not government media because then you're also playing a game of technicalities, mm-hmm. right? Stand up for what it is that you do. We are a crown corporation. We receive our funding primarily from the government, but we have a clear mandate by law to be independent. The government cannot uh, force us. There have been instances of the Canadian government attempting to meddle with the CBC and their coverage, and and those have been real scandals, right? Stick up for what you do, right? Because what you're essentially doing is handing it, handing the keys to a guy like uh, like uh, 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 how do you pronounce his last name? Polyev. Uh, Pierre Polyev. Yeah. What you're doing is you're handing you're handing an argument to him, right? You're basically saying. Like the idea of a government run of a government um, funded media is bad. The government should have no involvement. That's to me, that's nonsense. The government has an interest. And it's bullshit because this is a bilingual country and CBC is also Radio Canada. And Pierre Polyevre is not talking about defunding French CBC. He's only talking well, about the English. No, because of course that, you know, he because it's, because it's sacrosanct there. You can't fuck with the, it's also French. just like, let's be real. The national post and all those guys have received a bunch of money to stay afloat, uh, uh, from the government. The media is part of the public interest and the government has thus an interest in regulating media in, uh, in supporting it financially in certain cases, like the point of the CBC is that, and the reason it's government funded is that if everything else collapses, if all the other media companies collapse because Canada is a poor market for media and they all get taken over by Americans, there will always be the CBC, right? And that's been chipped away at over time, but it's not different than like, why do we still have Canada Post? Right. Because you don't want a situation where the only people that you're relying on for an essential service is the po- is the post office. It's also the reason we shouldn't have sold off our energy sector and we shouldn't, you know, 
the reason to have these things government run is not so that the state will have a voice through it. It's it's literally because these are in it's in the interest of the Canadian public to have a public media. Corey, wonderful having you on the show. And uh, I would urge my listeners, go check out How to Blow Up a Pipeline. You saw the prequel, How to Train Your Dragon. It's time to move on to the next level. <laughs> and then go see Super Mario Brothers uh, to learn how people can travel through pipelines. <laughs> Dream double bill. <laughs> Corey, where can people find you on social media? Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter, at Corey Atad. Um, and uh, you can find my writing around. I wrote about how to blow up a pipeline for Defector. I wrote about it. I did an interview with them for the now defunct uh, Gawker reboot. Um, and yeah, generally, just find, find me wherever. You'll find links to Corey's writing in the show description of this show. <laughs> and uh, obviously, you are welcome back anytime, sir. Yes, yes. If you enjoy this podcast, you could also become a patron and support the show directly. Over 30% of our episodes are only available to Junkfilter patrons. Please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. We'll have another episode of Junkfilter in the next few days. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thank you for listening. <laughs>